Uh, if you've got your Bibles, as I said, um, would you please um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's an easy way to find Genesis in your Bible if you're looking for it. Uh, you go to the beginning and it's there. Genesis 3, for those of you that don't know, comes right after Genesis 2, which means it's the third chapter in our Bible. Today's sermon is brought to you by the bleeding obvious. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we saw this, this, this story of, of God's heart for humanity on display. It's an idyllic world, and it's designed to be good for humanity and flourish. It's, it's a place where, where we could live, most importantly, in relationship with God. But I think we all know from bitter experience that this is not the world that we live in today. We've just spoken about that. We've experienced it ourselves I think Genesis 1 and 2 is there in part to set the scene for us to say, you know what, this isn't just how things are. This isn't just the way things are meant to be. The Bible starts with, you know what, the way that the world is, the way that things are, it's wrong, it's not right. Genesis 3 is going to tell us what went wrong, how everything got messed up. Why don't we read it for, for ourselves now? <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice seems to be going, so you might have a shorter sermon today. <laughs> the, serpent, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you mustn't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's, it's, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die, <laughs> said the serpent. You won't surely die. Let me just bring it up on the screen for you guys. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its, its fruit looked ooh, delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. The woman was, right, I've just read that bit. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I, I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, 
Well, it was the woman who you gave me, who, who gave me the fruit, and, and I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me, she replied, that's why I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will cause, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband or you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. And he said to the man, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it, then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. Interesting passage, isn't it? Why would anyone choose not to trust a God who had made everything so good for them? Genesis 1 and 2 is all about how good it has been. The serpent comes crashing in, the snake comes crashing in to this idyllic scene in chapter 3 verse 1 with, with, with very, very little introduction. Uh, the New Living Translation says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Um, some other... Um, Description. Some other translations might say that the serpent was cunning or that he was, uh, you know, that, that sort of craftiness. And we all speak Hebrew. You all speak Hebrew? Okay, well, good, good. Uh, just as much as me. What we don't pick up in is that there's actually a bit of wordplay happening here in the Hebrew. You know when you say something that sounds a lot like something else to kind of link the two together? If we go back just a little bit, um, well, let, let me tell you first the second half. Genesis 3 verse 1 says to us that the snake is crafty or shrewd, and the word there is arum. And I think maybe part of their temptation is that they wanted to be like the snake. They wanted to be arum. Proverbs um, chapter 8 verse 5 actually tells us that that, that it is with this word prudence that we attain wisdom. It's a good thing to be prudent. Same kind of word. Maybe this 
crafty snake comes along, this prudent snake, this, this shrewd snake comes along and they go, oh, actually, you know, I, I think I might want something like that. Maybe that's part of their temptation. But what's interesting is that all that they end up getting from this big, long saga from the snake is not arum, but an awareness that they are arumim, which means naked. So chapter 2 verse 25, we're told that they are arumim and then a serpent who is arum comes in. It doesn't really work in English, does it? Because naked and crafty don't really rhyme, but maybe this is about them wanting something that they think they don't have and realizing actually in the end that rather than getting it, they have less. Who is the serpent? Well, Genesis doesn't actually tell us, which is interesting, but we do know from Revelation, specifically a few other places in the New Testament, that this is, this is Satan. This is the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9, this is the great dragon, uh, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world. Revelation 20, verse 2 says, uh, speaks about seizing the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, binding him in chains for a thousand years. So uh, Revelation says to us, you know, this creature here, this, this is at least Satan speaking through the snake. This is, this is Satan at work here. Irritatingly, we don't get any more information than that. The Bible's not interested in telling us, at least in Genesis, the origin of Satan. This is just what happens. They become suspicious of God. Suspicious of God's character. You know, one of the interesting things which we look at as we look at the first three chapters of Genesis is how God is described. So if you go to Genesis chapter 2, which is all about the interaction between God and humanity, the focus is on people. God is described in terms of Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, the name of God, the covenant name of God, the, the, it, it, it signifies a personal relationship that humanity has with God. That, that's a really special bond. In, in fact, it's the name of God that we, we see revealed to Israel at uh, the burning bush with Moses. It's, it's the name that God reveals to Moses when, when he's going to be taking this nation and gathering together them together and he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people and they're going to know him. What is his name? His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I've always been who I've always been. Humanity in Genesis chapter 2 has this relationship with God that is personal. They're not just dealing with Elohim, like the generic God. You know, God is a generic word. You know, there's many gods in the world. They're not just dealing with God. They're dealing with Yahweh God. Personal God, the one that they know. And in fact, this is the same thing in Genesis chapter 3. When, when the text speaks about God, it speaks about the Lord God in English. Uh, if you read your Bibles and the word Lord is in capped, small caps, it means basically Yahweh. It's the name of God. Uh, if it's written in just, you know, normal writing, it just means master. Uh, but, but when it's that, that small caps, it means Yahweh Elohim, at least in the Old Testament. But what's really interesting is, although Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is all about this Yahweh Elohim relationship, this, this personal relationship, have a look at the first few verses 
One day, um, the serpent uh, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he, the serpent, asked the woman, did God, generic, really ask, say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that, that we are not allowed to eat. God, generic, said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God, generic, knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, generic, knowing both good and evil. The interesting thing about the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3, about this conversation that the woman has with, with the devil, with the serpent, is that it's all in terms of little g God. The snake asks the question in terms of little g God, and the woman replies, taking her cue and starts thinking in terms of little g God. She's not answering in terms of Yahweh God. She's not answering thinking about the God she has a relationship with, but she's answering thinking about just generic, you know, God. And some people might go, so what? But I actually think that this is really significant. And the person who, who wrote this, I think, who put it together, wants us to pick up on this. Because when we lose sight of the God we are in relationship with, temptation becomes stronger. When we lose sight of God, our God, we can start suspecting his character. My saviour God is always there for me. But God hasn't come through. That's what the snake wants. It's what the devil wants. He wants us to question our God. He wants us to suspect his character. He wants us to reject him. And the woman says, you know what, you know, God said, little G God, don't touch the tree. Which God never said, don't touch the tree. Why did she say, oh, and God said, don't even touch it. When God, and we didn't look at this, but, but when God said to them, you know, you've got these, all these trees and you can eat anything, but don't eat from that tree. God said nothing about don't touch it. But this woman replies to the snake, says, you know what, this generic God, he said, don't, don't eat it and don't even touch it or you're dead. I don't know why. Genesis doesn't really go into it, but I, I wonder if one of the reasons she added in that bit of don't touch it is because she really wanted to eat it. Have you ever done that? You try and put extra strong safeguards up? Jesus had a bit of a go at the Pharisees for putting up so many safeguards they become more concerned with safeguards than with God. 
The woman's motivation, Adam's motivation as well, to do wrong is simple. They, they become convinced that God was keeping the good stuff from them. That God didn't want humanity to become like him. That God was jealous. Which is an amazing thing for them to think. Because Yahweh God, the God that they knew, had made everything good for them. And when God made them, he said, let us make mankind in our image. And so in the image of God, he created them. And now they come and they're thinking in terms of generic God, not the God that they actually know. And they think actually maybe God is jealous of us. Maybe God's trying to keep the good stuff away from us. I mean, yes, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits to them. But for goodness sake, if you know God, you know that God didn't do that because he was afraid. Besides which, if you are God making everything, why on earth would you make something which would make you afraid? We're trying to wake up the neighbors, I think. That's just so ridiculous. God could have not put it there if he wanted to. He could have put an angel guarding it. He's, they sound pretty scary at the end of the chapter. Do you see what happened? They lost sight of the God that they actually knew and they were blinded by this generic God and started thinking generic God is out to do us down. It seemed to them that not having this fruit was not good and they wanted it. And so they ate and the woman ate and her husband ate. And by the way, verse 6, for those of you and those of us who want to say, well, you know, it's all the woman's fault. He was right there with her. No point did he pipe up and go, actually, that's not what God said. They both ate and they got what the tree offered. They got an awareness of not only good but also of evil. They knew it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just this, uh, I think, this, this conceptual understanding that you can go and write an exam about. I think they knew it in the, in the terms of they experienced it. They, they experienced not only good, which they had lots of, but they now also experienced evil. Their own evil. And there was guilt and there was shame and there was fear of repercussions. And we all know what that is like. And we see them in the next verse. They, 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 they're pitiful. They, they're desperately making coverings out of fig leaves. They realize that they're naked. And the whole thing that they're naked is, is weird. They, they, they're not crafty. They're not shrewd. They're just naked. Maybe, maybe it's the fact that having chosen to be able to live without God they suddenly realize their fragility and their, their difference from each other. Maybe they wanted to cover up because you know what? If she can turn against God, she can turn against me. I, I, I don't think I can trust her. Hey, he, he decided to do the wrong thing. If he can do that to God, maybe he can do that to me. I don't trust her. I need to protect myself a little bit. I, I don't know. Maybe it's something like that. It's just an idea, but... Quite often I think we hide because we don't want to get hurt. The fruit did its work. But the cost was a loss of innocence and a loss of trust. And so when they hear the sounds 
of the Lord God in the garden, they hide from him. They're ashamed and they're afraid. We don't like being found out, do we? We don't want to be known as bad people. And so we hide. John chapter 3 verse 20 says that those who do evil don't come into the light because they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. And the Lord God calls out, where are you? God wants to talk with them. By the way, the where are you is not a, I, I'm confused, I can't find you. This is God. If, if you wanted to, he could, you know, say, here, and they would be there. <laughs> but he calls out, where are you? But do you know the thing that gets me most about this passage? Verse 8 forwards, where God is calling out to humanity, is who is calling out to humanity. It's not God. Well, it is God, and it is the Spirit. But it's the Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. So what has happened is, these people have lost sight of the God that they know, the God who they are in relationship with, the God who is personal, who they, who they trust and love. They've given up on that God. They've been blinded by this generic idea of a God who's jealous and is trying to keep good stuff away from them. They've rejected the God that they know, the God who loves them. And what do we see in verse 8 of chapter 3? We see Yahweh Elohim calling out to them, the God of the covenant, the God who is in relationship with them, calling out to them. Basically, we see God, the God you know personally, saying, where are you? And yes, sin messes things up. Yes, sins breaks things. Yes, it broke trust, but, but it doesn't change God's heart for us. The man and the woman weren't calling God Yahweh anymore. They weren't thinking of him in terms of relationship, but when God comes to them, God comes to them as Yahweh, as the God who is in relationship with them. The break of sin is on our side. I'm sure, sin, I'm sure this whole thing breaks God's heart, but it doesn't stop him caring for us and it doesn't stop him loving us. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot deny who he is. Yes, there are consequences for choosing to rebel against God, to, to choose to go it alone. The snake is cursed. Uh, its crawling is now forever a reminder of and a, and a symbol of death. That, you know, some people want to say that before this point a snake had legs. I don't think so. Maybe I wasn't there, but I think it's just now that this snake, its crawling on the ground is now a symbol and a sign of the dust of death. Just as um, after the flood, the rainbow becomes a symbol of God's covenant. There were rainbows beforehand. But now it means something more. The snake is cursed. And what's more, verse 15, have a look at this. 
I'll cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. There's this ongoing battle between humanity and the forces of evil. The descendants of the snake, Satan's armies, demons, uh, striking at humanity. Satan himself, striking, striking, striking. You read through the New Testament, we see prophecies of how Satan is still striking. How he would devour the church of Christ. How he tried to kill off Jesus and failed. Striking, striking, striking. And also, we hear of the woman's descendants striking at evil throughout time. It's when people stand up and say, no, this isn't right. We're not going to stand for this. We cannot stand for, you know, Hitler killing millions of people in the gas chambers. We cannot stand for apartheid in South Africa. We cannot stand for, for violence to be in our country. This isn't the way that God intended. This is, this is humanity striking back at evil. And it's happening throughout time. You know what? This is just a, such an incredible thing. Humanity now has a knowledge of good and evil and they are fighting evil. And I think this is prophetic of all the time until the end when Jesus returns humanity fighting against evil even though we are overcome by it. We should take hope, however, because although Satan strikes, God is for us. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, right at the end of his letter to the Romans, probably the only reference to this verse in the New Testament, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, take heart because our God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under the feet of the church. Satan is doomed to lose. But the battle is still on until Jesus returns. The woman's not cursed. The snake is cursed. The ground is cursed. The woman and Adam are not cursed. But there are consequences for her. There's pain with respect to having kids. Uh, the word there, it, it, it covers uh, physical pain, but it also covers worry and grief. Uh, having kids is now an anguish because survival is at stake for both mum and child. Um, no longer will they have access to the antidote to death. They are cut off from the tree of life. If having kids is going to cause such anguish, well, why would she? Well, it's because she desires it. She wants it. God says here, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Maybe her desire is for her husband because, well, she can't have kids alone. She needs him. You know, the problem with needing someone is that that person now has power over you control over you because they have what you want and it's, it's really sad we see this domineering already in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 have a look at what we read here it says then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live I don't know if you've picked up on it but all through this section she is called the woman. But in verse 20, Adam names her. To name something is to take authority over it. Is to say, I'm in charge. It's one of the most beautiful things. God gives people new names 
Peter was given the new name Peter. On this rock I will build my church. It's, it's, it's Jesus saying, I, I'm taking you under my wings, Peter. I'm the one who is describing who you are. Revelation speaks of, of how God has a name for us that only he knows. Adam had described her as the woman, but now he names her. They had been equals, but now he says, ha, I'm in charge. It is God's intention for male and female to be equal, and it still is God's intention. That's why we read in Galatians 3 verse 28 that in Christ there is neither male nor female. The ground is cursed. It's no longer on God's special blessing. It's still going to produce food, but only through hard labor. Living becomes hard. There is anguish. There is pain for Adam as well. Death just hangs over everything. Let's bring this to a close. When, when we sin, we burn our bridges. And yet somehow still, God shows grace. When we sin, we lose sight of the fact that God loves us and we think that God is, is shortchanging us and yet still God wants to be in relationship with us. Uh, uh, verse 21 is just amazing. He makes clothes for, for Adam and now for Eve. And this isn't, I don't think about you know, sacrificing animals to make clothes. I think the big point here is just Fig leaves really are pathetic clothes. I don't know if any of you have ever tried them. I don't recommend it. And I think God looked at them and he pitied them and he made them something better, preparing them for the path that they had chosen. They had made God's good creation not good. They didn't trust him. They were sinners. They had no right to be in his presence. And he sends them out, he cuts them off from the tree of life and and that's grace. You go out into the world today and you say, would you like to live forever? And, and I reckon quite a few people would look at you and go, are you nuts? Why would I want to live forever? Why would I want to live in a world where there are evil people and where there is heartache and where people suffer? Why would I want that? Why would I want to live forever in a world marked by sin? I wouldn't want that. you imagine Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, if the poor writer of Ecclesiastes lived another 43,000 years? You'd be like, this is meaningless and dull. It's grace of God to say, we're not going to let them live forever like this. And Genesis 4 to 11 tells of an increasing distance between humanity and God and the story of the Bible is that God never gives up on us. The story of the Bible is God saying, you know what, you have burnt your bridges, but I'm the bridge builder. You're the ones who say you want nothing to do with me, but I'm always the one who's going to look after you. You know, if I didn't look after you, you would die completely. You would, you would not exist. In him we live and move and have our being. Even though we stand here and we say, we can do it without you, God but we're a little bit afraid of you, so don't come too close. God still says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. 
Genesis 1 and 2 say this isn't the way the world was meant to be. Genesis 3 says, and it's our fault, but God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't give up on us. That's it. God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Lord, so often we, like the man and the woman, lose sight of who you are. We, we forget all the ways that you have proved how much you care for us, how much you love us, how you are there for us. Lord, keep our eyes on you, I pray. Today, tomorrow, the rest of our lives. Thank you that you never give up on us. And thank you that you have rescued us in Jesus. Amen.